once I committed to the academic thing, my thing was I'm I made a conscious decision here, which is not to make a ton of money, but to uh, you know choose a lifestyle which allows me to be a lifelong learner. Uh-huh. So why would I stick with one thing? You know, I, I, if I get interested in something, I can spend time on learning that. And in fact, when I first started publishing papers in the statistics journals, the statisticians on campus said that, you know, what are you doing? You're not a statistician. How can <laughs> you be publishing in these journals? And then I started publishing in physics journals uh-huh. and I got the same reaction. So, uh, but I did that for a while. You know, I haven't published in a physics journal for 20 years now. <laughs> but uh, if I was obsessed with, I want to become famous in some area, I would have done like some of my colleagues who have done the same thing for 30 or 40 years. They are like superstars in that one area. Right. But that's, you know, to me, that that uh, violates the whole idea of why I wanted to be in academia. So um, I'm very happy I chose that because I got to do what I thought I was going to do. And it's been fine. Hi, welcome to this episode of College Matters, Alma Matters. Professor Upmanu Lal is the chair of the Earth and Environmental Engineering Department at Columbia University, New York. Over the last four decades, Professor Lal has pursued meaty problems broadly related to the environment. By his own admission, he gets bored easily. This has resulted in a broad experience across disciplines, resulting in deeper research in a variety of different domains. Professor Lal joined academia so he could keep learning new things and inspiring new generations of students. On both those counts, he's definitely making a mark. We caught up with Professor Lal to discuss his professional journey on our podcast today. Over to Professor Lal. Hello, Professor Lal. Welcome to our podcast. College matters, Alma matters. Thank you for yeah, um, making you. it. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it took us a little while, but here we are. I'm very excited to have yeah. you and uh, love to sort of talk to you about your professional journey. And sure. uh, just by way of introduction, our podcasts are you know targeted at international students or potential international students. <laughs> and um, we're trying to reach them through these personal stories of uh, faculty members and students and alumni from sure. different U.S. colleges. So that's the thrust of what we're trying to do. So um, maybe the best way to start is uh, maybe you could start us from the top, maybe a little um, introduction to your background, and then we can sort of dive deeper as to how it all sure. came about. Yeah. Yeah. So I am a professor at Columbia University. Sure. Uh, my primary appointment is in the Department of Earth and Environmental Engineering. Mm-hmm. And um, I work on issues related to climate, mm-hmm. water, and mm-hmm. uh, risk and syst- infrastructure systems management. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you've been, and, and, and you know, this, is, this journey kind of started a few decades ago, I assume. And so right. um, maybe... We can start with, um, I know I know you're from India, and after your 
undergraduate, you decided to come to the U.S. So, mm-hmm. what was the motivation, and how did that? Yeah, all come so about? I gr- graduated from the Indian Institute of Technology at Kanpur mm-hmm. uh, in 1976 and worked for um, a company called Usha Martin Black. Mm-hmm. Sorry, there was a phone that interrupted. Um, so I worked for about a year mm-hmm. and concluded that um, largely because of exposure to the way the government organizations that were clients of the company worked, mm-hmm. it was rather difficult for me to um, uh, f- f- work in India because, you know, there were people who explicitly asked for bribes and things like that. And sure. the technical aspects which I was enjoying were not really that paramount in their mind. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I knew a lot of my classmates had already come to the U.S. for graduate school. So I applied and um, ended up at the University of Texas mm-hmm. at Austin and uh, in civil environmental engineering, focusing mm-hmm. on water resources and uh, systems analysis. So that's how I came to the U.S. And I had admired... Uh, both high school teachers and some of the IIT professors. So I was interested in going in the same direction. And uh, when I finished in my, my master's and my PhD in Austin, mm-hmm. um, I had the choice of going to a private sector job versus a university job mm-hmm. uh, versus a public sector job. And uh, it got settled by one person asking me why I would choose a university at all. He was rather disdainful of the idea. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're just going to be a student for life. And actually, that was interesting for me because <laughs> wanting yeah. to be a student for life is kind of attractive. Uh-huh. Sorry, this is... Um, yeah, so that's how I ended up in academia. And I started teaching at the University of Utah originally. And then after I was tenured there, um, that had become very much a teaching school uh, at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching six or seven classes a year, uh, Mm -hmm. which was about a factor of two or three more than what people were teaching in other competitive universities. Sure. And so I switched to Utah State University, which was nearby. Mm-hmm. And uh, there I, I went back and actually refreshed my mathematics background by essentially taking all the applied math master's coursework all mm-hmm. over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I ended up uh, various people, not just in Utah, but at MIT, Yale, UCLA, and Columbia, on issues mm-hmm. related to climate and nonlinear dynamics and chaos and uh, mm-hmm. functional estimation. So quite different from a traditional civil environmental engineering background. Sure. And um, then in um, 1998 or so, uh, I switched to Columbia University largely because I was tired of, uh, I, I had to do some administrative responsibilities at Utah State and um, it was time for me to take a break from that. So I took a sabbatical to Columbia and then just ended up staying here, actually. Um, hmm. So that's the so, background. So, um, 
if I could go back and sort of ask you, um, I'm quite interested in sort of seeing how your experience at UD Austin was, you know, coming from mm-hmm. India and adjusting to sort of the graduate program there. And maybe from there, we can sort of talk t- about your road to the to environmental engineering. Sure. Um, and uh, so maybe that's... Uh, yeah, so nice. look, this was a long, long time ago. And so, you know, things have changed in Austin. When I was sure. there, it was a town of two or 300,000 people. Now it's over a million and the university is sure. much bigger. So the experience a student would have going to Austin today, I think would be quite different. Sure. But uh, some aspects may not be different. Um, yeah. I found once, so when civil engineering at UT Austin is typically ranked around fifth in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I discovered was that I had taken quite a few graduate classes as an undergraduate in uh, in the IIT in Kanpur. Mm-hmm. And so even down to the books that were being used, I had already taken much of the stuff that was being offered. Okay. Uh, so that was that's, I think, one important thing to know is that if you're coming from a competitive international school, um, mm-hmm. you may already be well-versed in many of the things that a top U.S. graduate program is trying to get you to learn. Sure. Um, the other is that the social aspects, I think, uh, require getting some used to because uh, people are much freer. Uh, mm-hmm. pe- people are much more uh, engaged in talking to people from different uh, backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in, in a country like India or China, it's much more homogeneous relatively, even though we think we are very diverse. Mm-hmm. So people have to be, people who come here also have to be a bit more open-minded and more interested in talking and sharing because they'll find that that's, that almost uh, any university in the U.S., the students are much more receptive and interested in you than you expected. So um, so you said you started out, you know, uh, by training in civil engineering and then, mm-hmm. na- you know, you kind of um, migrated, if that's the right word, into environmental engineering. Uh, t- talk a little bit about how that happened. I mean, is that Well, look, frankly, I was completely lost, you know, in terms of what I wanted to do. So Mm -hmm. uh, in the days that I went to uh, undergraduate education in India, uh, your parents in the middle class had had two choices for you. You're going to be a doctor or an engineer and (laughs) the rest of it didn't exist. My father was a doctor, so I managed to escape that, but I couldn't (laughs) escape too far. And... Uh, actually, I had no clear plan just because other people were taking the IIT entrance exam. I did. Uh-huh. And frankly, I was completely unprepared for it. I'd gone to the senior Cambridge program, which ended in December for high school. Right. And I was just floating around. And then one of my friends came by and was asking a lot of chemistry questions. And I was going, why are you wasting my time? You know, mm-hmm. And he said, the exam is in two days. And I was going, oh, no, no idea that this was something I have to do or not. And then uh, foolishly, I mentioned to my parents that, you know what, I have this exam I've signed up for. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, of course, the gears kicked in. I had to <laughs> not spend the next two days studying like mad. Uh-huh. And uh, so I ended up in IIT more because of pure luck of this friend showing up because I would not even have remembered to go take the exam at that point. Uh-huh. So engineering was not by choice. 
Sure. And then when I was going to graduate school, I actually applied for psychology mm-hmm. um, and for, you know, soil mechanics and structures and water resources within engineering because I still had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I got assistantships in all those areas, which made it even harder. So my choice uh-huh. of Austin was based on the fact that uh, I was interested in optimization and systems. And the only examples I've seen were water-related examples in the undergraduate program. And Uh the second thing was most of my friends were going to the colleges in the Northeast or West Coast. And I thought it would be good to go to a wild place like Texas. I actually did not even know that they were ranked fifth (laughs) in civil engineering. It was a good surprise. So that's... That's that's not a good example for someone to follow. It's just purely by accident. I know, I know. You know, uh, the best laid plans and all that, as they say. So this is uh, this is quite a, kind of very interesting. So um, I I sort of um, hear the term hydrologist. So what does that mean, and how does yeah how does that sort of fit in? Yeah. So hydrology is the science of the existence, movement and circulation of water on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, most hydrologists are stuck in a traditional mold where they, you know, where in their view, the processes start with rainfall mm-hmm. and then monitor or model or try to understand the flow of water through rivers and through groundwater and things like that. But mm-hmm. really modern hydrology embraces the entire climate system and thinks in terms of how oceans um, Mm -hmm. drive both the temperature contrasts in the oceans, Mm -hmm. drives atmospheric circulation, and as a result, water vapor movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the dominant factor that leads to rainfall. And so if you start at rainfall, you're sort of missing the real picture. Mm -hmm. And so today, you know, we are looking at, can you predict what would happen to the hydrological cycle at different timescales next season, a year from now. And the hydrological cycle here embraces the flow of water through the atmosphere, the oceans, and land. Mm-hmm. Now, people live on land, so it's easy to see why, in an engineering sense, historically, the focus was on land. Mm-hmm. But you are unable to really you know, make much progress or say much about what would happen to futures on land unless you understand the full cycle. And I've always found this fascinating because the concept of the hydrological cycle is introduced perhaps soon after kindergarten or, you know, first grade or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And then um, it's casually visited in the same cartoon a few times uh, through Mm -hmm. the rest of your education, but no one really has uh, focused on you know, the science of hydrology as the total hydrological cycle and actually quantifying how it varies. But that's where we are today. It's the water in plants, the role of vegetation, the role of oceans, you know, all of that um, as it defines the living planet is what hydrology has become. Now, how did you get into this? I mean, I, I, what I mean by that is, um, is this something that started with your... Um, PhD program or research? No, or did that you know, happen over the years? Yeah, so the graduate programs in engineering that cover hydrology or water resources are relatively tight and technical, and I would say, by and large, very boring. <laughs> okay. uh, the 
I mean, it depends, you know, to each individual to some of extent. Course, of course. Some of it, some of it, the first time you get into it is interesting. But um, they've been so limited historically in terms of the vision and what they focus on that it becomes another plug and chug sort of situation. So, uh-huh. you know, it's not that interesting. I mean, to me, I get bored easily. So when I was uh, at the University of Utah, um, I was the only person working in that department on the quantitative side of water. There were people working on water treatment and wastewater treatment, but I was the only one on the quantitative side, which is mm-hmm. what was considered hydrology. Yeah. And I was the only one in those days uh, in that department who was ready to teach computer science type of classes, you know, Fortran programming and things like that, and statistics uh-huh. and optimization. So when you're teaching six or seven classes a year and there's no one else in your area, you are also teaching um, classes alternate years that are different. So a grand total of 10 or 12 distinct classes. Uh-huh. So that was an interesting educational experience for me, uh, uh-huh. you know, both learning how to communicate this diverse set of things as well as uh, learning them. And then when I moved from there to Utah State, teaching one or two classes a year down from six to seven uh-huh. was just sort of amazing. And so there was all this time that opened up that gave me some time to start exploring things on my own. So I started exploring climate and from that back into hydrology, I started mm-hmm. exploring uh, chaos theory and nonlinear dynamics and it connected very nicely with climate because uh, you know some of your listeners might know of Ed Lorenz's work on, on chaos Uh, And he's a climate scientist and this idea that a butterfly flaps its wings in China and it rains in Los Angeles, you know, I mean, it's it's a joke, but it speaks to the sensitivity, the extreme sensitivity of the climate. So those kind of things got me quite far away from the typical mold. And I think even to this day, while many people in hydrology know me, they would have considerable trouble recognizing me as a traditional hydrology person. Uh-huh. And uh, also I keep you know, changing what I do. For example, in 2008, I decided to look uh, globally at what are the main issues for water uh, around the world and what could we do to solve them. And that landed me back in India as the worst place in the world. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So we spent about 10 years working with farmers in India to try to understand what are their motivations and how those could be tapped to improve both crop productivity and water usage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, those the fact that I move from topic to topic has kept me interested. And that's uh, what a university career has provided me that, you know, a private sector job would never have done. Uh, because you have the freedom to choose what you work on. No one's sitting there telling you that your job is to crank this model and come up with the following set of numbers day in and day out. Um, That's probably what's worth communicating from that journey. It also seems to me that um, one of the things as as you were recounting, it seems like this is really a very interdisciplinary thing that you have. I mean, for example, teaching the six or eight courses that you did, uh, the exposure mm-hmm. probably gave you all these sparks of interest in various things which you were able to connect. Right. Which yeah. I think is a very interesting 
aspect as well which in traditional mm-hmm. education you don't sort of have yeah. too much of that right yeah. so i mean i chair the department now and you know anybody we are interviewing for a faculty position the first thing they want to know is how they can avoid teaching for as long as possible <laughs> it's phenomenal i mean like what's the point of being in this kind of a job if that's your starting discussion but right. that's where we have come by and large uh, because what people are judged on today in academia is how much money they bring in and you know whether they are getting recognized for the number of publications they have and by other academic circles and teaching is parametric it's the thing you are required to do but you're not getting rewarded for that for the most part um that's unfortunately where we are across the world uh, i thought at some point that it was just the us but certainly europe is in the same place and china is fast catching up with that mentality right, right. so right. it's you know unfortunate but the the reality is that even many of the younger people are going in that direction and in fact when um people approach me that they want to do a phd and want to come here i personally grill them significantly to see if they really have a good balanced interest and they are genuinely interested in doing something good if mm-hmm. i don't get that sense i will never accept that person no matter how good they are i wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about being a professor and at columbia mm-hmm. um maybe share some experience with that and then i want to kind of talk to you about being the chair of the department as well sure. so maybe the one two aspects so maybe we can start with yeah being a is, you know a, a fantastic environment uh it's what you can make of it that's the challenge to each person mm-hmm. uh, just i would say that purely on academics probably there's more competitive environments like at the iits in india mm-hmm. but in terms of enthusiasm of the students their engagement in civic life or society and wanting to do something or even getting into the financial industry with the goal of doing make, making a lot of money but doing something good in the process mm-hmm. uh, over the last 20 years the pendulum at columbia for students i think has swung from significantly from uh, don't really know that much about the environment don't really mm-hmm. care i'm mm-hmm. to get a job on wall street to i would say in the last 5 to 10 years it's uh amazing in terms of how everybody wants to be an entrepreneur but do something green mm-hmm. and the the interest in wall street as such is really not that i mean it is there of course but it is not the right sure. thing for them mm-hmm. uh, and reforming wall street is you know you often hear from them that's one of their goals the student body that comes to columbia mm-hmm. um typically is top of the class um engineering accepts around 4% to 5% of the applicants the mm-hmm. university overall is at maybe 5 to 7 mm-hmm. or undergrads and so they look for uh breadth and mm-hmm. ability to express that you have thinking more broadly than just you know coming in to do a certain major mm-hmm. it's probably breeds a certain amount of subjectivity in terms of how somebody gets accepted mm-hmm. but um 
frankly, given the applicant pool that we see, it's mm-hmm. not clear how you would choose anyway, even on a quantitative metric. Um, the selection process is also geographically balanced. Mm-hmm. Global university, not a New York university. Mm-hmm. They try to bring in roughly similar numbers of people from around the world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a percentage of applications coming from those places. Sure. sure. So, th- so those are some of the factors in terms of uh, what's phenomenal and also to some extent daunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of seminars that you can uh, find of significant interest and can go to mm-hmm. given day, including, you know, visits by world leaders, uh, presidents, uh, prime ministers, and so forth uh-huh. is a challenge because when I was first here, I was like, this is good. This is good. This is good. And I was just <laughs> doing all these things and it was super exciting. And now, you know, I don't really even have time because of my admin and other responsibilities to go to these things. But there's just a lot of them. And uh, part of it is Columbia. Um, and then I was at Yale for some time. And, you know, so that part is similar. But the thing that makes a difference is New York. Uh, yeah. Changes that dynamic and the access to people who can bring in who want to come uh, changes things. And that also goes to uh, the population we get, both for students and faculty and researchers. Um New York is one city that all Europeans feel at home in. It's much more European than what they see, you know, any other place in the U.S. So there's a lot of Europeans that come here. There's little India, there's little China, there's little every country. Uh Uh, So that's a big draw uh, of, uh, you know, people coming in here. So if you are interested into global networking, understanding, I don't think one can beat Uh, being here or in London or in Singapore. Those are the three places I would bring up. So now, um, a little bit about teaching. I mean, I I, I don't know if you get to teach much nowadays or do you still teach? Yeah, Yeah. okay. So uh, obviously you have a passion and you did mention earlier about uh, the candidates and about the passion of teaching. Mm -hmm. How do you you view teaching and how, how has that been over the years? So, you know, the... The thing with teaching is the most challenging part is that there are some students who are going to be very good. Mm-hmm. And there are some students who are not going to be so good. And it may be that they are not good because they're just not interested in that subject and they have to take that class. Sure. Um, so how you connect to them and how you get something through to them that you know they will remember and use that is the challenge for the instructor. Um, mm-hmm. And what I find is that uh, I don't, I'm not doing that nearly as much in the last two or three years, but mm-hmm. uh, prior to that, uh, um, even when I had 200 students in the class, um, I would get to know most of them at some personal level. And you know, once you've established that kind of rapport, people feel a lot more comfortable even telling you that, look, your lecture here today was junk. You know, we didn't get anything out of it. So, and that's useful. And historically, even undergrads I had at the University of Utah in 1981, surprisingly still reach out to me. So I think that is is the, 
mechanism or the bond that one strives for if you are really interested in doing this from mm-hmm. a student perspective every student's learning style is different yeah uh for me frankly when i was an undergrad um beginning of the semester my class attendance was 100% end of the semester my class attendance was 0% <laughs> yes you know and <laughs> so for me the learning style is self learning and if i have a question i'm happy to go to a class and ask the person um for others it's very important that you sequentially walk them through every step of you know what needs to be done because they don't get it otherwise and mm-hmm. they don't like reading mm-hmm. so that is another issue where i think today uh what is emerging during covid with much more zoom and you know uh, distance right. learning kind of things this is going to help refine how different learners can be reached and uh, can learn better mm-hmm. in the classical teaching model i think we were stagnant we despite all the efforts by the people who were focused on teaching and learning right it was not translating into the classroom but in these distance learning modes what i'm seeing is um that especially when there are a lot of people in your class from who are remote yeah. uh they very quickly start networking and helping each other mm-hmm. and this learning from each other i think is uh almost a better metric uh, of how well this is integrated because if someone is just lecturing you focus on a one directional assimilation and then regurgitation right but when you are interacting with others the freedom to ask and you know pace yourself and come back and ask is much much higher so mm-hmm. as more of that is getting promoted through zoom and distance learning and people networking um that i think is a good thing and then it's also clarifying the roles that the instructor has which become here is an agenda for what you need to learn and mm-hmm. then the responsibility uh is perceived much more by that individual as you know i need to shape up and really get this and there is stress that comes with that which is a problem but uh, i think how the, how each individual resolves that stress if the help is available will dramatically change learning models into the future so what i'm hearing from you is actually that this this is the silver lining if you will mm-hmm. um and that this has a huge potential for the future so how how do you envision or how do you visualize a blended model here so i can, can tell take... you i took a machine learning class on coursera from mm-hmm. stanford there was a woman called uh, stephanie can't remember her last name who was teaching it uh this was about 4 or 5 years ago and there were you know several thousand students in this class mm-hmm. and um what i saw organically develop there and then i followed it subsequently you know when i've done these distance learning classes also is that she basically created a chat section where anybody can you know jump in and ask a question so uh-huh. hell of it i started putting questions there on a semi regular basis and i can tell you that there was no question to which i did not get an answer within 5 to 15 minutes that mm-hmm. useful answer not just a junk answer sure and then uh in some cases not in every case but in some cases there was a detailed discussion about among many people criticizing or trying to uh provide alternate answers that they thought were better than the first answer which mm-hmm. is remarkable you don't get that in a standard learning right. experience 
Right. So yeah, so I think I guess the the big thing is there is some feeling of um I don't want to say freedom but people feel quite comfortable expressing mm-hmm. views which they may not do in a you know a face to face session or in a Yeah, it, I think it also promotes creativity because you know uh, I remember that in one case one individual went completely nuts and did like a three or four page derivation to show <laughs> the first person that they were wrong. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> So um, I'm going to um, move on and ask you about being a chair. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. um, what does that entail? And obviously, it's a different role. How are you taking it? And what have been, you know, what yeah. are the good things and what are the challenges? Right. So the the thing is that, you know, the good thing associated with that role is that it gives an opportunity to bring a group of people together to focus on some mission, Mm-hmm. Having said that, in the academic environment at that level, defining what that mission is and getting people to actually pay attention to it mm-hmm. is not easy. Right. Um, getting people to converge on teaching responsibilities, helping with evaluations of you know how the teaching experience is going and so on, this is not hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone does their own research. Uh, mm-hmm. So the only place where a common mission comes together is who's the next person we are going to hire and, you know, which area should that person be in and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And other than that, you know, there's a certain amount of administrative bureaucracy, which is not really that big a deal. Right. The challenge in all this is that if you really want to push the envelope and do, you know, some interesting things, you mm-hmm. need money and resources. And mm-hmm. those are not there usually because mm-hmm. uh, the control for that kind of a thing is at the dean's level. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to be more of a political animal as a chair to try to get your share of the resources, which is not something I particularly do well at or, or I'm good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, a negative, but that would happen in any bureaucratic regime, whether private sector or public sector. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, um, obviously, given your um, given your expertise and your um, interest in this broad area, I mean, you can obviously set out a vision that you know on research and on directions that you can take, which you may be able to do better in this position than just as a faculty member. Or do you think you could do that? Anyway? No, you don't have the time. Okay. You know, okay. it's it's a job where. If you have a very large department that you are the chair of and, you know, at Utah State, that was the case, then it is somewhat easier because there are people you can delegate different things to, you know, their committees and each committee head is functional and all that. In a smaller department, which is the case we have at Columbia, other than in computer science, really, Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that easy because you don't have that many people. The people don't really want these bureaucratic responsibilities. So you end up stuck doing it all. So you don't have the time to really do a whole lot with it. Um, Universities are becoming much more corporate, so to speak. So the claim is that the federal government is now doing much more auditing. So if you're funded you know, on federal projects and things like that, we mm-hmm. have the responsibility to prepare all this bureaucratic junk to respond to that. That may be true, but I think a lot of the people who are 
in upper admin at all universities now um are people who were brought in uh to so called streamline the bureaucracy but they create much more bureaucracy you know in the process of doing that so a lot of what we end up spending time doing in this chair kind of role is eaten up responding to those kind of activities and so it it's not you know it sounds good but it's not and so the progression in that is that there's another term for department level leadership which is called the head of the department yeah uh, what that means is the person is not elected by the faculty but so is appointed by the dean mm-hmm. and uh, is more autocratic uh there's pluses and minuses with that you know that that means that they have a line into resources which is a bit better but on the other hand they can be a pain in the neck to have to yeah. work with also sure okay that that's, i mean it's fair i mean everything comes with the good and the bad mm-hmm. um so i also noticed that um you head up the columbia water center right yeah um, mm-hmm. what is that about and is that does that give you a good sandbox to do all the yeah so stuff? the thing is it's a research institute and um the interesting thing there is that most universities uh, especially state universities in the us have a water center mm-hmm. and the same would be true internationally columbia mm-hmm. never had one Mm-hmm. and so when i came here you know i didn't really miss it i didn't see that i needed to have another yet another institution to have to deal with right but at some point as we were working on sustainable development goals uh through mm-hmm. the earth institute mm-hmm. it seemed like it would be useful to have a entity that looked at global water sustainability issues and uh had the focus on how to solve them so that's how it was created and uh, so it's interdisciplinary it's across campus and the mandate originally was to actually do physical engagement at sites of interest with uh, corporations with farmers with politicians to actually achieve change mm-hmm. so we've done quite a bit of that in fact the only continents where we have not had a project or the poles the polar continents antarctica right. etc so we've we've had projects on floods on water scarcity on agricultural productivity on reservoir operation on you know climate risk management hydropower things like that across the world in africa in south america in uh, asia uh-huh. and europe and also in the us so in that sense it's been a good platform because there's you know different from a single researcher's thing there's a place where you can bring all that information together that's archival mm-hmm. and there's visibility so we get a lot of visitors uh funded by their own countries who come and spend a year with us you know and so on and again the visibility that a center creates allows that to happen an individual faculty member may or may not have that same visibility mm. Okay so um moving ahead i mean you you mentioned earlier about the students and you gave me a flavor of um the types of undergraduate students that you mm-hmm. end up picking or columbia ends up picking now what would be wonderful is if 
you could from your vantage point uh if we're talking to high school students mm-hmm. how how you know how should they prepare themselves and what are the kinds of things that um they might want to explore uh before they come to college you know and um more in a preparatory sense than otherwise uh, yeah you so you know for an international student the most important thing is to recognize that there are programs uh in most countries where there is some representation of the admissions office of colombia or similar schools mm-hmm. and they should go and talk to those people to actually get a sense of what each institution is looking for mm-hmm. and that's the job of that individual to talk to you and you know give you that information mm-hmm. there's also preparatory uh organizations in each country in at least in the major cities mm-hmm. uh that offer you know these services now they are expensive so the question is is it really worth going and talking to those people um i'm not sure that it always is mm-hmm. often what they will do is they'll bring in people from harvard yale columbia etc uh who have graduated recently to come and give you some you know feeling on how to prepare right but the bottom line is that you should take the sat because they'll look at that here and there's a way to do that remotely right uh they should uh make sure that the way their scores are computed someone helps them translate that into what it means in the us context because the admissions officers here will do their own translation of that but if someone has provided that they will probably accept that you know and it could be that they don't necessarily know the best way to translate your thing you know they might know what a school in beijing does or some you know but not necessarily in another province in china uh-huh. um the essay is important uh the essay many people try to write very flowery essays that's not really a smart idea uh-huh. uh the essay needs to be clear uh-huh. it needs to show that you have some goals uh not just for the undergraduate program but beyond uh-huh. uh it needs to show that you have uh some experience perhaps in research in some sense mm-hmm. it needs to show that you have given some thought as to uh what aspects of the of the university here uh you are most interested in engaging with as well as ones you may be interested in but would like to learn more about so keep in mind that whoever reads it is going to spend maybe 1 minute right. to 2 minutes on your essay so sometimes what i w- i've seen people suggest is that if there are some points that you want to have stand out um put them in color or in a different font or bold it because you want the person to jump to that and read the next few sentences above or below that as well right and most of this reading is happening on a laptop or you know on a screen not on right. printouts right so you know you can keep that in mind and there's uh i've heard some people give guidance that keep it plain vanilla don't try to put in diagrams and pictures and all of that sure probably a good idea but at the same time um uh, you know keep in mind that there's being out of the box in terms of how you present yourself is good yeah yeah 
So, you know, um, another thing that uh, would be very valuable as we wind down here is, you know, as you look at the next few decades, what are the kinds of things you think students, um, what skills or what, what is really going to be important for um, as they come into the workforce and as they become, you know, researchers or folks like yourself? Um, what, what do you see, what do you see um, is needed or would make it uh, help them be successful, I guess? Yeah, it's a tough question. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I would, you know, go back to what I said right in the beginning of the podcast, which is flexibility is important yeah. in this aspect because you the world is changing continuously you know so if you have your target on something and that thing no longer exists by the time you graduate you're not exactly going to be a happy person right. but if, if you you know sort of go with the flow that's probably useful frankly for me to give an example as i said earlier i didn't really know what i wanted to do right one of the things that I experienced after coming to the U.S. was that in India, TV was just arriving when I came to the U.S. Right. Uh, I mean, there was there were TVs in Delhi and some places and things like that, but it wasn't that common. Mm-hmm. And any programming in India would be just government propaganda anyway, you know, other than a few <laughs> comedy shows in those days. Mm-hmm. So I found TV really fascinating on coming to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there was advertising. I had never seen, heard, the, you know, experienced the concept of advertising on TV because government TV doesn't do that. Right. And my question, my immediate reaction was, you know, this is really amazing that people show you all these products. I want to buy all of them, but I can't. You, it's, I, I don't have a car. I'm not going to be able to go to Kmart or Walmart or whatever it is. Right. I want you to sell these to me. So why can't I buy them off of, you know, this uh, advert, advert you're offering? Right. So I came up with the concept of what is called the Home Shopping Network or mm-hmm. QVC now. This was in 1977. Of course, yeah. you know, nothing like that existed at the time. And, you know, having internet with Amazon and everything now globally, shopping has changed. Right. But uh, if I had had the money, I would have started that at that time. You know, yeah. nothing at all to do with engineering. So yeah. I think being open and observant and looking for opportunities, perhaps the biggest message. Okay. That you think is um, what helped you sort of, you know, navigate the, your professional journey, I, I guess. In a way, you know, it's different because once I committed to the academic thing, my thing was I'm, I made a conscious decision here, which is not to make a ton of money, but to, uh, you know, choose a lifestyle which allows me to be a lifelong learner. Uh-huh. So why would I stick with one thing? You know, I, I, if I get interested in something, I can spend time on learning that. And in fact, when I first started publishing papers in the statistics journals, the statisticians on campus said that, you know, what are you doing? You're not a statistician. How can <laughs> you be publishing in these journals? And then I started publishing in physics journals uh-huh. and I got the same reaction. So, uh, but I did that for a while. You know, I haven't published in a physics journal for 20 years now, <laughs> right. but uh, 
if I was obsessed with, I want to become famous in some area, I would have done like some of my colleagues who have done the same thing for 30 or 40 years. They are like superstars in that one area. Right. But that's, you know, to me that, that uh, violates the whole idea of why I wanted to be in academia. So um, I'm very happy. I chose that because I got to do what I thought I was going to do and it's been fine. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You're uh... You have a fascinating story and very, very inspiring. So before we um, sign off here, anything else you want to share or anything that you think might be? Yeah, I think we covered quite a bit of ground in a relatively short time. So thank you for keeping me on task. No, absolutely. I want to thank you for, uh, uh, for finally, you know, I I really was looking forward to this because I, I was quite fascinated by what you had done. And so um, very, very glad that we could connect and put this together. And I'm sure it will be extremely beneficial to, you know, um, high school students and families and parents as they navigate their college journey. So thank you again. And I will stay in touch. And uh, great. good luck. Be safe. Okay. Hi again. Hope you enjoyed our podcast with Professor Lal of Columbia University. Professor Lal's passion for research and teaching is infectious. I find his pursuit of academic challenges very inspiring and hope aspiring students out there find it worthy of their professional pursuit. I believe Professor Lal's insight into the types of students at Columbia is extremely useful. For your questions or comments on this podcast, please email podcast at almamatters.io. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or visit anchor.fm forward slash almamatters to check us out. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you.